Thanks for continuing to listen to The Making of Medicus. As of now, I currently have my podcast on Spotify and Anchor. On Spotify, you'll be able to listen to music clips that I've incorporated into my podcast, as well as on Apple Podcasts without the music clips. Also, feel free to share with friends and family, especially if you're an undergrad in pre-med or medical student or in residency to your fellow students and residents. Thank you again. Episode 3, Dying, The Messenger. There is a time in every physician's life where they face their own mortality. The first time for me was April 2017. Shortly after Christmas that year, after I separated from my husband, I noticed a dark line on my non-dominant middle fingernail. I thought surely during a spine case I had smashed it. But as it continued to thicken, I got concerned. I remember my second year of medical school, we had a lecture regarding melanoma. I have a visual memory, and I remembered in the lecture there were four different types. A melanoma of the fingernail was listed as the third type. I'd never heard of it, and I remember looking it up on the internet at the time I was studying and realizing that Bob Marley had died from it. He had refused for them to amputate his toe when it was discovered. And of course, this is the only melanoma to not be from sun exposure since I was never outside in the sun. My 20s and 30s were spent in the hospital or in the library, and fortunately not at the beach or swimming pool. This was also the type that was strongest in the minority population, and my nails started looking like that rather than an injury during surgery. My routine didn't help calm my fears. Each time before surgery, as I cleaned out underneath my unmanicured nails with a nail file, I was reminded of what I had studied. I had even tried to inspect my fingernail under our neurosurgery microscope, trying to see whether or not it appeared to be more traumatic or cancerous. I kept putting it off, but one day after I finished early in the operating room, I decided to send a photo to my hospital's dermatologist, Dr. Greeson. He returned my message with concern and offered to see me that afternoon. He confirmed what I was trying to avoid. My nail had concerned him as well. There was no way to tell if it was malignant or not without a fingernail biopsy. But with me being a neurosurgeon and this type of melanoma not being very common, he referred me to his friend, Dr. Tudor, an orthopedic hand specialist in San Antonio. With me being on call an average of every other night a month, me having a stretch of call three days off, I was fortunate that Dr. Tudor offered to see me the following day. He even told Dr. Greeson he would get me in the that day at the day surgery center to perform a biopsy with my nail removing it in order to save me a trip and help me have closure faster than later. He had told me I needed a week to heal. I didn't tell him I couldn't do that. So I canceled my clinic the following day and had my dad come from Fort Worth to make the early commute to San Antonio from San Angelo the next morning. My daughter stayed with her dad until I got back. A lot goes through your mind during that time. I knew if it was melanoma, I would have to have a partial finger amputated, amputation to treat it. I also knew that melanoma was hard to treat unless it was caught early. I had not always wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I came to that my second year of medical school. However, it was no easy task. Four years of college, four years of medical school, 
seven years of training, and now my second year of practice, I might lose my finger. Not just any finger either. The bird. It was like my life was playing the strangest of jokes on me. I felt like an athlete injured during the middle of the season. It was during these days of waiting, I really sought through prayer and meditation who I was. Had neurosurgery become my identity, or was it, and had it always been, Leslie? I realized at that moment, I never had my identity in neurosurgery. Yes, it was what I did, but it was not my being. My being was my faith, my daughter, my family and close friends. Then it was my job. Not every neurosurgeon would tell their hand specialist to cut off their entire arm if it meant they would be around for their daughter. However, I did call my program director, the coordinator of my neurosurgery residency program, Dr. Graham, the night before my trip. I still remember talking to him at that time, not as a student, but as a friend. I knew he cared about me. He was always honest and never tried to make something look better than it was. He said, you can still operate, Leslie. You know, I know an orthopedic surgeon who is missing a finger. And my reply to Dr. Graham, you know orthopedics is not neurosurgery, but you do have a point, and I appreciate you giving me a sense of peace with this ordeal. I'll let you know what the pathology report says. The next morning before the sun was on the horizon, Dad and I set out for San Antonio. Once we got there, I signed in, handed in the paperwork, and waited in the waiting room with my dad like every other patient. Eventually, they called me back, and Dr. Tudor brought me in his room. He examined my finger, and as he did, he gave me an internal piece I'd hoped I provided for my patients. He said, I can get you biopsy today. My dad started asking him what he thought. Is it melanoma or not? Before he answered, I told my dad, We'll have to wait and see, Dad. He then reassured me and said, don't worry about it. He took my cell phone down and said, I will let you know when we get the results personally. He knew my hands were my livelihood, just like his were. He told me he was impressed. Not that many women neurosurgeons around, he spoke to my dad, reassuring him in his own way that he should be proud of the hurdles I'd overcome. And this would just be another one to add to the list I told him I had a daughter, and despite me being a neurosurgeon, she was my everything. I had to make sure she made it to 18. And if he had to take my finger, my hand, or my entire arm, it didn't matter to me. He did say I was jumping the gun, and that he would only start with my finger now. Like that, 15 years of training matching into less than 200 neurosurgery spots when there are 20,000 medical students per year, as well as thousands and thousands of hours studying and operating day in and day out. It didn't mean anything to me anymore. Like all mothers who may be listening to this podcast, being a mother was my number one priority. I had to make it till Talia was 18. That thought kept repeating into my head. As I waited in the preoperative area, I finally understood how it felt to be a patient. I was in a hospital gown, poked with an IV to administer anesthesia, 
and signing away everything to the doctors I entrusted with my care. Dr. Tudor came by and marked me. I appreciate what, what he had done. I know a doctor's schedule is sacred, and I figured he had given up his lunch hour to squeeze me in. All those lunches I gave up for all those patients who never knew I did, but I knew he must have. The anesthesiologist who provided sedation for me actually had done locums at the hospital in San Angelo. I felt like a queen with all the special treatment. I rolled into the operating room, slowly slid myself onto the table. Thousands of times I'd gone into the operating room, but never as a patient. The room, full of loving faces, was so cold and scary. I finally knew why my chairman at my residency training program, Dr. Young, would accompany his patients into the operating room and even sometimes hold their hands when they fell asleep. It was terrifying for me. I know if it was for me, it must have been for them. I tried to I actually tried to crack a joke, apologizing for giving Dr. Tudor the middle finger for the entire operation. All I can remember was he thought my joke was funny. And magically, I went to sleep. I had been given propofol, and by the time it wore off, Dr. Tudor was performing my fingernail biopsy. I think they let me wake up more after the block. By now, my anxiety had worn off. This was my element. After he saw I was awake, cracking my usual nerdy jokes, he commented that he didn't do many fingernail biopsies. He actually had performed the second hand transplant in the entire United States. So I doubted that my fingernail biopsy was very academic for him. But with me being a surgeon, he was doing me a favor. I trusted him with my life he had told me since he was sending my nail to the pathologist that he would uh, be making a fake one with a piece of foil. When he later called me with a pathology report, he asked me, how was that foil splint doing? I had told him it had fallen off. I didn't want to tell him that I pulled it out knowing that I needed it off in order for me to operate the next day. Athletes had to play hurt and it wasn't too bad but that piece of foil would have impeded my routine of scrubbing in, and so it had to go, and it did. Two days later, he called me. My heart was pounding in my chest. I have good news. It looks like a junctional nevus. In layman's terms, a benign lesion. We are going to send it to San Diego for a second opinion. Supposedly, there's an expert nail pathologist there. When we hear back, I'll let you know personally. But the pathologist that looked at it, I trust him. You don't need to worry anymore. I could have given him the biggest hug ever. It wasn't cancer, and I felt God had given me a test and I had passed. Or had it been all those patients I had taken care of, I had found favor. For now... God not only wanted me to be a mother, but he wanted me to serve him as a neurosurgeon. And on that note, it wasn't until I became a mother did I actually understand a mother's love. It is truly unconditional, the purest of love that there can be. It reminds me of the time I was told by a mother to give her daughter a message. 
My job is mentally, physically, and emotionally exhausting. I pray every morning for guidance as well as for my patients and their families. During my second year of training, I got asked to do what I know as a mother is one of the most cherished things that a mother can do as a human being. I had a middle-aged African-American female who suffered a non-survivable brain hemorrhage. One of her sisters asked me to call her mother and let her know how her sick daughter was and that there was nothing medically we could do for her. The siblings were going to respect their sister's wishes and remove her life support, knowing that she would never wake up and be the person she was before she had presented to our emergency room at Virginia Commonwealth University. But they wanted me to speak to their mom and tell her everything that had happened. So I took down the mother's phone number and I went to the resident call room to make the phone call. I wondered why her sisters had asked me to do this. Was it my compassion? Was it because I was black myself? Or was it because it was a task that was too hard for them to complete? It was something I'd gotten used to, unfortunately. Leanne had been correct about the dying. And neurosurgery our field was probably had some of the highest rates due to brain hemorrhages and trauma and spinal cord injury. I never thought of that when I applied as a naive medical student, but it was something I soon found out. I called her mother and I explained everything to her. She understood, but then I did what I had learned to do. I listened to her. I listened to her describe her daughter. I could envision the person she had been and I was glad she didn't have to see her daughter connected to all the monitors and the ventilator keeping her alive. She then went on to explain that this would be the third child that she had lost. Every mother hopes to never bury her children, but she would be burying her third. But then she made me promise. She made me promise to go into her daughter's room and tell her, that she has and will always love her and that she was her baby girl. Sorry, I had to take a moment there. Having Talia now, I'm honored she trusted me over the phone to carry this message to her daughter. She was too ill herself to make it to the hospital, she told me herself. But she said her daughter needed to know that before we stopped the machines. So after I got off the phone, I walked down to the hall, into the, her daughter's room, and I reached for her hand that had been under the blanket, keeping it warm. I leaned down and whispered in her ear the message her mother entrusted me with. The last message of her to her daughter. And as I did, I had a tear running down my cheek. I prayed for her and her mother. Her family was making a tremendous sacrifice. They were allowing her to pass with dignity and comfort. 
I prayed to God to watch over her once she got to heaven. And I wiped away my tears and I left her room. And as I walked back to the call room, a conversation I had earlier that year with my mentor came to mind. And I had asked him about crying because of the job we do. That will have to be another story. But then he told me that he still did and that I should begin to worry when I couldn't anymore.